Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. We must stand strong in the face of opposition. When he was appointed as the pastor of a church in Cambridge, England in 1783, Charles Simeon was delighted, although the people of the church didn't share his joy. Many of the prominent members of the church opposed his convictions on reaching the lost with the gospel. To show their displeasure, they locked their pew boxes during the service and left them empty so that those who came to hear Simeon preach had to stand or sit in the aisles. Eventually, God began to work, and Simeon's ministry had a powerful influence on the nation of England and the world through his efforts to encourage missionary work. During the dark days of opposition, Simeon wrote this, In this state of things I saw no remedy but faith and patience. It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the aisles, almost forsaken, but I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would on the whole be as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. This comforted me many, many times, when without such a reflection I should have sunk under my burden. You see, friends, opposition does not always mean that we're doing things wrong. In fact, quite often it is evidence that we're doing things right. If we allow ourselves to be deterred from doing anything unless we have complete approval, it is certain that we will never accomplish anything of value. Rather than being discouraged by opposition, we should take comfort in God's faithfulness and keep on doing what is right. Keep on sharing the gospel. In many places, the Bible describes the fate of the unsaved in terrible, fearful terms yet again others about what it means to be a Christian, our tendency is to shy away from mentioning what the gospel compels us to accept as truth. Hello, and welcome to our GCS podcast with author and evangelist Tony Anthony. Laws protect our general safety and ensure our rights as citizens against abuses. While some laws might give us pause, people understand and uphold laws and would have no hesitation speaking about them. Some Christians feel that using the law in evangelism can be harsh and unloving. But is it right to feel that way? Is there a way to speak to the lost in a friendly way that's non-intimidating to reason with people by addressing the conscience rather than addressing the intellect, a place of contention? Let's join Tony as he shares the conclusion of his message entitled, A Run on the Roman Road. After sin has been awakened, either through the Holy Spirit and the law, or through Christ directly, or through Christian witness, the second element of the gospel to be presented is righteousness. Righteousness is the central theme of Paul's teaching in the book of Romans. In chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, he highlights that all are unrighteous, but that God has provided righteousness for mankind in justification by grace. You know, God declares a person to be guilty, but in Jesus, he cancels the guilt of the person's sin and credits righteousness to him. Even though we're all sinners, God declares everyone who puts their trust in Jesus is no longer guilty, but righteous. The NIV Study Bible notes that the legal declaration is valid because Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin and lived a life of perfect righteousness that can in turn be imputed to us. 
Christ's righteousness, his obedience to God's law and his sacrificial death will be credited to believers as their own. You know, in our presentation of the gospel, I use the idea of the perfect record to illustrate this point. The idea of the perfect record is taken from the picture in Revelation, in which everyone has a book recording his or her deeds. We read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. Though our record, the long list of violations of God's law, renders us badly short of God's standard and fit only for eternity apart from him, we have the possibility of replacing our imperfect record with a new perfect one, that which Jesus freely offers us, because he has already paid the price and taken the punishment for all sin. So first we're wounded by realisation of our sin. We stand condemned and incapable of making ourselves right before God. But the sheer beauty of the gospel is that it quickly comforts with the knowledge that this unrighteousness can be exchanged for Jesus' righteousness. We can claim this righteousness as our own, even though it's undeserved. The terror and anxiety of knowing that we're not right with God can be exchanged for peace and tranquility. Isn't that amazing? Righteousness is the balm that the Holy Spirit uses to soothe the wounds inflicted by the awakening to sin. This is absolutely good news. It's fantastic news. But there's more to understand, more to grasp, and more to communicate as well when we share the full gospel in the hope of a person's salvation. Just as our natural tendency is to shy away from the subject of sin, so we struggle to speak of the biblical truth of judgment as well. Yet the fact of judgment is sure. We read in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. We also see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There are many more verses we can draw on, of course. But Jesus referred to the day of judgment on several occasions. In our gospel presentation, we use the analogy of the court judge with the guilty man before him. He's bound by his position to make a decision for the sake of justice. And as we all readily seem to agree, they who are found guilty are to be punished. And what is the punishment? Well, scholars tell us that there are three words in scripture that are translated in our modern Bibles as hell. Gehenna is found in Matthew 5, 22 and 29, and also in Matthew 10, 28, and James chapter 3, verse 6, and it means a place of punishment. Hades, also a Greek word meaning abode of the dead, is found in Matthew eleven twenty three and Matthew 16, verse 18, and Luke 16, verse 23, and Acts chapter 2, verse 27. And then we have Sheol, which is a Hebrew word meaning the grave, which appears in Psalm 9.17 and Psalms 86 verse 13 and Psalms 18 verses 5 to 7. Now can we conclude then that hell or whatever we choose to call it is a biblical reality? And so I ask the question in the context that a staggering number of Christians seem to take issue with the certainty of hell and punishment. You know some believe that hell is to be annihilated, to cease conscious existence, to have eternal sleep, and yet scripture paints a different picture. Just look at Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 31. We're giving that chilling account of the rich man and Lazarus. The point to note here is the conscious state of the rich man in hell. He speaks of his torment and the agony of intense thirst. And then similarly Mark's gospel records Jesus' graphic reference to the horror of being thrown into hell in Mark chapter 9 verses 42 to 49. 
In many places, the Bible describes the fate of the unsaved in terrible, fearful terms. Yet again, we speak to others about what it means to be a Christian. Our tendency is to shy away from mentioning what the gospel compels us to accept as truth. Once again, it seems that the devil's devices are at work. Don't talk to me about that. Don't make people feel bad. Isn't this all too scary and far-fetched? Surely there isn't really a place of such intense suffering that after death. It's much more likely that we just fall asleep and know nothing, just like before we were born. Well, you know, we hear these sorts of excuses, don't we? It might not be popular to proclaim hell when we're talking about good news. But as we've already seen, it's vital that we do proclaim the whole truth, rather than a watered-down version of the gospel. Heaven, hell, and the final judgment are vital elements of the gospel, and the consequence of ignorance can be devastating. C.S. Lewis, in his work The Great Divorce, famously asserts there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All are in hell. Choose it. When we're clear on the three elements of sin, righteousness and judgment, we can more easily begin to explain the truth about Jesus as saviour. I really recommend that you visit our GCS website, www.greatcommissionsociety.com, and look under Gospel tab, just to see again how we can use the analogy of the imperfect record being exchanged for Jesus' perfect record. You'll notice too the emphasis this presentation makes on how we can be forgiven, addressing the all-too-prevalent belief that behaviours such as going to church, trying to be good, believing that God exists, being christened, baptised or confirmed make us right with God. There's no doubt these are all positive things, but do they give us forgiveness? Do they actually reconcile us to God? Do they assure our place in eternity with him? No. When we use the illustration of swapping Jesus' perfect record for our own, we can clearly impress on the non-Christian why we must be saved and the truth about Jesus as our saviour. Jesus' saviour is the fundamental heart of the gospel, and I encourage every Christian to carry in their heart some of our most beloved pieces of scripture, then enforce and celebrate that fact. Just remember Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Of course, you've got John 8 36, so the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And of course, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As we know, however, there is more to the Christian life than simply believing and accepting Jesus as a gift of grace. Again, I believe this is something often missed in our communication of the gospel message. And again, I can see the hand of the deceiver at work here, wheedling away, moving Christians just a small degree off the truth. So that if a non-Christian should respond to their gospel, they later find it lacking in truth and substance and turn away, perhaps. You know, very, we're very quick to enthuse to a non-Christian that all they have to do is say yes to Jesus, that Jesus will be the answer to all their problems. But is this really fair? Is it the truth? Many people will openly admit that their life is lacking in some way, that they're perhaps unfulfilled or suffering with addiction or with a problem that controls and manipulates their life. Such people are often willing to try something that might be offered as a cure, but we're desperately at fault if we lull them into the belief that all will be well once they have said a prayer of commitment. Just say a quick prayer and we're all fine. You know, Lawrence Singlehurst in his insightful book Sowing, Reaping, Keeping, People Sensitive Evangelism, he writes this, Conversion to Christianity is not some first aid plaster, not some magical cure. 
Rather, it requires understanding not only of the wonderful benefits of forgiveness and the healing, but also of the need for repentance and surrender, of the giving up of our own self-centeredness. We've already discussed this in previous podcasts, but I perceive there is so much confusion about repentance and accepting Jesus not only as Saviour, but also as Lord. It's a huge mistake to teach or imply that nothing less than genuine, heart-wrenching, gut-level repentance is an absolute prerequisite to conversion. And it's Dr. John Stott who wrote, The gospel offer is not unconditional. It is clear that every sinner cannot be forgiven if they persist in clinging to their sins. If they desire God to turn from their sins in remission, they must themselves turn from them in repentance. We're charged, therefore, to proclaim the condition as well as the promise of forgiveness. Remission is the gospel offer. Repentance is the gospel demand. I must admit, this has never been too much of a stumbling block for me. When I became a Christian, it was not the awe and wonder of an eternity in a fine mansion in heaven somewhere that drew me to Christ. Nor was it even the idea that my sins could be forgiven. Of course, these are overwhelmingly great things. But the realisation that really caused me to prostrate myself at the feet of Jesus was that he died for me. He did it for me. Now I know I'm talking from a very personal testimony here. And different aspects of the gospel are more powerful to different people. But all these years later, it is this recognition that Jesus died for me that keeps me on my knees before him. His crucifixion seems so wrong. His body should never have been touched. He was a perfect and innocent man. God was skin on, who should never have gone through one shred of torture and torment for my rottenness. Yet he did it. And this is what has happened. It was unbelievably horrific. And it was because of me. What an amazing love. What an amazing grace. If I serve the Lord Jesus then, it's not because of what is now available to me, nor is it because it's the least I can do to say thank you. Rather, it is because he made me. He knows me. He deserves everything of me now. It's William Barclay who cautions against the trend to lure people to the altar with a promise of blessing as we hide the cost of becoming a Christian. Even when Jesus walked the earth, there was that kind of temptation, you know. Jesus could have given the people what they wanted very easily. He could have bribed them with material things, with almighty shows of power and strength. But what did he give them? He gave them humiliation, torture, degradation, injustice, incomprehensible suffering, the cross. So when I present the gospel message, I always make a point of emphasizing the need to turn and surrender to Jesus. I refer to the fact that God made us in the womb and that he made the entire universe surround us. And so I then ask a question, don't you think he deserves to be the central person in your life? To make Jesus Lord is to put him at the center of all our decisions, all in our life. And once we've turned to him in this way, we call on Jesus to determine how we use our time, our money who we have as friends, what we watch on TV, and, you know, who and how we love. Every thought, attitude and action is now filtered through Jesus. And our learning and understanding is drawn from our instruction manual, the Bible. Basic instructions before leaving earth, it stands for. You know, this crucial reality of acceptance of Jesus as Lord must never be neglected in our explanations of the gospel message to others. And having said that, I believe that it's only as we begin our walk with Jesus that we begin to realise what this really means. 
For me, it began with a real hard-hitting, dramatic situation where a very violent man came to attack me in prison. In truly putting my trust in Jesus, I had to be willing in those pressurising moments with a blade at my throat to literally offer up my life. For others, surrender to Jesus is realising in a much more gentle process as we progress through our days with him at the helm. The point I'm making here is that this part of the gospel message is perhaps one that matters most in that it requires an ongoing decision. It requires a continual nurturing of an inner relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Let's look again at the gospel reports of Nicodemus. You know, he was a very religious man. He knew the scriptures, kept the law, and was dedicated to the church in a big way. And as a Pharisee, he was a spiritual descendant of the Hasidian movement, the group whose name came from the Old Testament concept of Hasidim, which means the faithful or the saints. You couldn't get a much more righteous and respected man than Nicodemus. God was on his mind a lot. But the writer of John's gospel uses the story of Nicodemus to tell us that right standing with God does not come through correct beliefs. Right standing with God does not come through correct beliefs. You know, Nicodemus even believed in Jesus in that he believed he was sent from God. We read in John 3 verse 2, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one can perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. But in spite of Nicodemus's belief in God, his belief in Jesus and the scriptures, Jesus recognised what was wrong inside Nicodemus. Jesus seems to bluntly change the subject on Nicodemus when he says in John 3 verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And at this, the Pharisee must have been quite taken aback. You know, was Jesus implying that he, a respected God-fearing servant of the temple, might not see the kingdom of God? What more could be required of him? Didn't Jesus recognise his life of faithfulness? But Jesus went on to speak about what it means to be born again and about the difference between physical and spiritual rebirth. There's so much to explore in this wonderful exchange. But the point I want to draw out from Nicodemus' experience is that a right standing with God comes only through an ongoing relationship with him. It does not come through having the right beliefs or the right behaviour. It is not the result of scholarly or moral commitment. A right standing with God comes only when we realise that we don't know it all and we're willing to see our great need for him. When Jesus said you must be born again, he was saying that the Christian life is not a set of beliefs or a moral code. It's an experience. That experience consists of confessing my sin and need of God. In faith, feeling God cleansing and filling me with his love and his spirit. God is not looking for your faith or your obedience as much as your heart. He wants to have this relationship with you. And if you've missed having this relationship, you've missed everything. You know, John 3.16 and John 3.18 talk of belief. Doesn't it say, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And you know, when we read these verses as they're set in the light of Nicodemus's conversation, we understand that the kind of belief that Jesus was after was not a belief that accepts a set of facts, but the kind of belief that places your whole trust in Christ. That means you believe he is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, your whole life is centred in that reality. Your complete trust is in Christ and you live in an ongoing relationship with him. 
This is the message we must preach. But to do that, it is the message we must understand, accept and embrace of our whole heart. Then urgency and compassion for the lost will certainly come. We hope you enjoyed the message. Please subscribe and leave a rating and review to help others find our podcast. At GCS, our mission is to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us, or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors in Edinburgh, UK.